0: Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back to Bibliophile's everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again, having a quiet private laugh with the Center for Lit Crew which is probably going to bleed over into the broadcast today. We can't really tell you what we were laughing about because it's not it's beside <laughs> the point.
1: Can't. All right.
0: Uh, what was it Ian?
1: No, we can't tell him. You're right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's another episode of Bibliophiles. We are glad to be with you once again. I'm joined as always by the center for lit crew, which consists of my wife Missy. Hi. My son Ian. Well, hey. And my daughter-in-law Emily.
2: Hello.
0: Good to be with you guys one more time. Today's topic is a topic that comes from a a question, uh, a comment that we got from a faithful bibliophiles listener which frankly doesn't happen to us all the time. And so we're excited to take up the comment and spend an entire episode addressing it. And the, the comment was really a question. And the question went like this. Which books by living authors do you think will be classics someday? Which books by living authors do you think will be classics someday? And we can only assume that the question was lobbed at the Center for Lit crew because we are, we're considered to be some sort of experts in this field so what we're going to do is spend the next 40 minutes telling you <laughs> what books we like without any explanation whatsoever. And you can that's make exactly your own decisions right. from there. Isn't that right, guys?
1: That's, that's just right. <laughs> um, my answer to the question is none of them. They're not old. No, I'm just kidding. Let's just talk about books we love. Why not? Why well, not?
0: before we do, though, let's do take up the the question, Ian, that you sort of alluded to just then none of them, they're not old enough, Um, Mm -hmm. as kind of a a humorous sideways swipe at a fairly serious um, objection to the reading and cherishing and advocating of recent books. Mm -hmm. Right? Summarize that objection, Ian. Well, without wanting to paint any,
1: any... Uh, well-meaning holder of this perspective as some sort of rube. Um, (laughs) The idea is that the most important detail in evaluating a classic book is the passage of time. And so the only way we can know if a book is a classic is if it has survived um, a period of years. And as you can, I'm sure, see, if you think about it for a second, that's a really difficult standard to uphold because it restricts us to um, some sort of vague unspecified rubric for what literature is
0: worthy of being studied and read or it forces us to specify a rubric and pick a number
3: well i you know um i've i've read around a bit in the great books and um in the works of uh, mortimer adler and clifton fadiman and his colleagues their colleagues i should say and um they wrote a lot about the selection process when they were putting together the Encyclopedia Britannica set of the great books of Western civilization. Mm-hmm. And they had to go to the mats um, with people, with the public about why they chose some authors and works and didn't include others. And I, I'll tell you the truth. When I first saw this set, I thought, well, this is bizarre. Why would they include this and not this? This was so influential. And so they, they wrote a lot about why they included what they did. And I'm not not necessarily saying that the list that they came up with is the list that I would myself choose, but I think some of the organizing principles that they used in order to create their list really do help to, um, to kind of refine our ideas about what makes a classic long term. And Mortimer Adler said that the degree of insecurity in the editorial selection of the great books increases as we come nearer and nearer the present day, our own time, because it's hard to gain the proper perspective regarding the universal appeal of a work from within the author's own time.
0: This is the origin of the, the of impulses that give us the 100-year rule. There right. has to be some separation before you can actually see the effect of a work clearly, right?
3: Yes, and so if you're trying to evaluate works in your own time, it's not to say that you can't acknowledge that this work is good or that this work has merit, but to know whether or not the work is actually going to survive beyond the generation that it was actually written um, for is very difficult mm-hmm. because you're within it. So your mind is Which shaped is by the that, questions that... that- that are of the generation and of the moment. And and it's not it's not to say, Ian, that, that the works that are of the moment are not valuable. Of course they are. It's just sure. that 100 years from now, if it was merely of the moment, it's not going to be
1: something that people still read. Um, Adler rightly notes that it's difficult to actually evaluate. To evaluate, I think what he called it is the universal appeal. Right. Right. Of the set of ideas, because we're too close to it in our own time. Mm -hmm. So all that that really means, though, for this discussion is that the question, while really fun and interesting, isn't necessarily all that relevant. Relevant. (laughs) What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, I mean, um, we can we can sit here and talk about books that we think are worthy of study now. But to ask what books are going to be classics someday is purely conjecture.
3: Yeah, it's all speculation. Because
1: we just can't. know. the word classic means still being read hundreds of years years later. That's what the word means. So actually, what I think I would say, and this is not um, not to say that our listener who asked us this question asked the wrong one, but rather that she's got her finger on something important. And maybe the way that I would rephrase it is, what you mean is what books are fabulous, what books are worthy, what books are, what makes a book worthy of being studied, what right. makes a book worthy of being treasured?
0: What books being written that's today? A we
1: can't answer, yeah. even if we can't answer the question, what will be a classic someday?
0: I, I think yeah. it's a good way to put it. What books being written today are going, can nourish our souls today in the same way that they will nourish the souls of readers 200 years from now?
3: Or maybe which books being written today are making um, viable contributions to an ongoing dialogue between the authors from generation to generation about the
2: universals, right? Also, I think that the listener just fully intended for us to engage in speculation.
0: But <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that taking that question from both of those sides is really fruitful. On the one hand, the definition of what is a classic uh, it helps us judge the, uh, which books to read from the, from the canon, from the tradition, to look back 500 years and say... Which of which are the ones, you know, should we pick? But also looking at the fact that that question really um, has something else underneath it, which is how do you tell a good book from a bad one? What are the books we should be reading now? Uh, It's a separate question and a good one, an equally good one, I'd say.
3: I want to just um, insert a comment by Clifton Fadiman. And then I'll stop quoting at you, I promise, and we can just start um, making our speculations. That chance. <laughs> I promise. I do promise. <laughs> Listen to what he says. He says, the great ideas, the abstract infrastructure of Western thought and feeling, form part of the warp and woof of the 20th century contributions. The modern authors share in the great conversation, perhaps even more so by reason of their very departure from the broad highways laid out by their predecessors. It is not at once apparent that imaginative writers sit at the same table with Plato and Archimedes. Pirandello does not quote Plato. Fitzgerald had probably never read a page of Archimedes. What makes them part of the great conversation is something so deep as to be elusive. It has to do with the impalpable medium of thought and sensibility in which our raw daily experience floats. The great conversationalists of the past are the architects, Of our mental habitat. Authors react to our common home in a special way, responding more intensely, interpreting it, extracting from it symbols, emblematic characters, images, webs of evocative language, epiphanies of human awareness. All these emerge from a view of life pervaded by the great ideas. And again, that is Clifton Fadiman. That is beautiful. Uh, from an article entitled "The Contribution of the 20th Century," and I really think that he's got his finger on it here. Yeah, yeah. Right. The the um, the sensibilities um, of the modern author that have been shaped by those that came before, by those architects of the imagination. Right. Um, mm-hmm. They're working in a tradition and responding to it, even by their departures from it. And creating and participating in that web that he he speaks of, the evocative language, the epiphanies of human awareness, symbols, emblems, characters. And that's, I think, what we should bring to our conversation today.
0: I love that idea because what he's implying there and what you're teasing out is that a book shouldn't shouldn't make our list today uh, because of the fact that it looks just like a book from 500 years ago. It should make our list today because it is living in that same world Mm -hmm. of ideas, but making perhaps a completely different kind of contribution, maybe making a modern contribution Mm -hmm. with, with, you know, the, the sensibilities of today's artist, but self-consciously working in a long tradition of that, that he calls the great conversation. Right. That's really profound. It gives us room to consider books that we may not otherwise consider.
3: Mm -hmm. I think so.
0: For example, anybody have a contribution to our list? If a, cla- if, a bo- if a book that meets this criterion, a book written by a living author that will someday be considered a classic, is going to be that because of what Mom just read from Clifton Fadiman, what books do you think meet that criteria that have been written by living authors? Emily, I vote you. You're
2: in the hot seat. <laughs> Go. I mean, I, I guess I'll... Since I'm first, I'll take the easy one. Uh, probably Marilyn Robinson. She was on my list too. The the trilogy uh, Gilead, Home, Lila. Um, I think Home's my favorite of the three. And what I'm trying to think about is it being shaped by our own times, because that one is kind of countercultural too. Um, I mean, it, it definitely asks a lot of the questions of our time. But, yeah,
3: and
0: what, what, the what,
2: idea of alienation.
3: I and-
0: want to ask Emily what what you mean by countercultural.
2: Well, I was see, I was just reading an article today about Christopher Tolkien, and it was talking about how the Inklings were in conversation with the modernists of the day, but that they weren't the dominant voice, artistic voice of the time. The dominant artistic voice was Virginia Woolf and James Joyce and mm-hmm. and Fitzgerald, and so. I, when I'm thinking about this question, I'm trying to think of where both sides of the conversation would come into play. So Marilyn Robinson, on the one hand, and maybe someone he's not living in anymore, unfortunately, but someone like David Foster Wallace, on the other side of the conversation,
0: would be uh, would be kind of analogous to F. Scott Fitzgerald on the one hand and C. S. Lewis on the other. Is that yeah. what you mean? Mm-hmm. Interesting.
3: Robinson voicing the Christian and so she's response she's kind it. of
0: a Christian countercultural example
2: the the, uh yeah a perspective that fills in some of the holes of the questions Mm -hmm. Wallace asks
0: Missy you were about to jump in with something on Robinson too why would you you said that you would include her as well on your list
3: oh um for the same reasons that Emily mentions it really I, I think that's really well said the um I think her works explore um they explore alienation and the inability or the difficulty, maybe not inability, but the difficulty of one, gen- one generation speaking to another. She, she paints the, the different generations as having different vision, different callings, and being really shaped by the time in which they live, and portrays the, the, um, the gulf that tends to separate them and the action and reaction that occurs um, relationally within families as a result of those differences and provides some really compelling, I think, answers or um, hope. She provides hope and a a touchstone that unites the generations and provides a common language in the sacraments. Um, So her her work is really sacramental. The imagery of water and light um, just really pervade the stories themselves, which, as you mentioned, Emily, you know, she tells three different stories, but really they all surround the same, um, the same people. So it's the same, the same, same story even, right? essentially, more or less. Um, but from three different characters' perspectives. And so it's for that reason too, just a fascinating study of character and perspective. So yeah, I, I agree. She does a beautiful job.
0: I want to toss another idea into, in favor of Marilyn Robinson. And that is alluding to something Emily said a minute ago about the, and I don't know if this is how you put it, but about an author or a work being sort of a sign of its time or a creature of its time that, that she, her works, the three you're talking about really do seem to spring out of a late 20th century America where religion, um, is at the, at something like the end of a long and tumultuous relationship with american society and it has been it is it's been tried and found wanting and marginalized but it never really goes away because it seems to, to hook on to something permanent and it's intractable and never will finally be swept off of the table and so it persists in its power to interpret and make relevant the stuff of human existence and You feel that way as a resident of late 20th century, early 21st century America in some ways. America is incurably religious, even though it's also pretty secular by this time. And that question of how the categories of religion still persist in their relevance, and it's kind of surprising to everyone, is bubbling under the surface of Marilyn Robinson all the time. And I think you guys are both right that these are classics. I think 200 years from now, people are going to look back and say, not only wow, what a great work of art that uses the imagery of water and baptism in such powerful ways, but also, wow, late 20th, early 21st century America was quite a time to live in, as we can tell by looking at what Marilyn Robinson has dished up.
1: Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Ian. I think I would agree with all of that. And I wanna I wanna maybe toss another couple of names. I like the idea that Emily was pointing to of, of there being a cultural voice that's sort of pretty broadly accepted as uh, as a current great or as a, as a current artist. Mm-hmm. And then someone coming along underneath them and behind them that's a contemporary doing similar work on a slightly less popular topic, uh, maybe a little subversive, even culturally speaking. And I see a parallel like that happening right now in juvenile fiction that I think is really powerful too. You've got um, the work of John Green, who's a, a young adult, a writer for young adults um, that is a writer of remarkable poise and um, talent. I think his, his style and the subject matter that he takes up to write about are both really elegant and beautifully expressed most of the time and deep. He's not, he's not giving into the pressure as a popular writer. I mean, one of his books was even made into a uh, popular movie. So, But all of the weight of that fame hasn't actually coaxed him into uh, relinquishing his grip on uh, deep universal thematic content and and difficult universal content at that. And so I I think he's, he's very much a mainstream writer, but he's also um, doing really good artistic work, but definitely not from a religious or Christian perspective. Right. Um, There's a, there's a subtle thread of nihilism that sort of runs through his work and I think he's puzzled by it and perplexed by it himself. And maybe the question, can this really be all that there is going on here in the world uh, it sits at the heart of his work, and that might be the really the root of of his of his genius. But um, but he's not a Christian. And on the other hand, we have Gary Schmidt, mm-hmm. who is also a writer for young adults, mm-hmm. um, who is likewise taking up deep, weighty material, and and has likewise a gorgeous um, touch. I mean, his style oh, yeah. is it's actually beautiful. And it's similar
2: content, it's similar
1: content it but is. Schmidt is coming along at that from a very christian perspective and i, I just think it's a really good
0: parallel Wow, i hadn't thought, thought of that before
1: Fitzgerald and lewis mm-hmm. i think john green and gary schmidt are a good uh, brace of authors to be considering today also
0: wow can you guys believe
3: we had gary schmidt on our podcast once? no i cannot no, i can't that was so much fun i i fangirled all over the guy poor guy
0: we made fools of ourselves i, I think did. is what happened i think
3: i said beautiful beautiful about a hundred times <laughs>
0: You know what you did, Missy? I think I did this too. You said to him, hey, remember that in chapter four, when the one character did that one thing, and then you paused and said, that was really cool. That was really, really cool. cool. <laughs>
3: remember that image that you used? That was really cool. That beautiful. was really cool. <laughs> He was um, very patient.
0: I have a very uh, this this comment might be a jarring change of tone, but you mentioned John Green, and I've read a couple of John Green books at your suggestion and enjoyed mm-hmm. them thoroughly. I thought they were wonderful. And I wonder on this discussion of future classics, maybe even, you know, narrow the 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 field, future classics for young adults. Is John Green going to stand the test of time, given the fact that his um, his social setup and, and junior high, high school slang is so rooted and embedded in early 21st century America. The kids That's say stuff question. that in a hundred years from now, no one's going to have the faintest idea what they're talking about. It really might be true.
2: Yeah. yeah. The humor is very keyed. It in is. Hard times.
1: But here's the other thing though, that I think is kind of interesting and maybe, um, literary historians of any stripe would, would cut me down on this, but a quick search of my own, uh, mental archives <laughs> would say that, um. The young adult genre that exists today is something we made up. We made it. I agree. Fair point. And so, because of that, it'll be interesting to see if any classics at all survive from that genre, because actually, it's not a genre that mankind before us has ever considered a necessity. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like like young adults are people that mankind before us never considered a necessity. Like a
3: prolonged adolescence.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I think Robert Louis Stevenson was writing YA fiction, if he knew it at the time. But instead, he was just writing for people and happened to have a heart for youngsters. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote in an idiom they might appreciate, but there's the works have survived because it's Treasure
0: Island for Pete's sake. I mean, right. he's talking well, about- important things. Do you think then that part of, of reading classic young adult fiction 200 years from now will be part of the fun. will be trying to figure out the high school slang of 200 years ago. I mean, there'll be a, a literary, um, a literary technique or pursuit that doesn't even exist right now. Reinterpreting 200 year old high school slang.
2: Mark (laughs) Twain's humor still resonates. I was just going
0: to bring that up. But Twain's yeah, local dialect, dialect is totally embedded in its time and place and, and in unintelligible outside of that. And yet we strive and exert ourselves to figure it out, right? I think it might
1: be true that John Green is good enough to be uh, poured over later. Um, but I think it's more likely that someone like David Foster Wallace would be. I mean, he's if there is a modern idiom, uh, he's probably the guy that coined it.
3: But he's not writing for the same audience.
1: No, that's for sure.
3: <laughs> Let's just make Let that really clear. Let there be no misunderstanding. <laughs> anyone misunderstand yes. us?
1: David Foster Wallace is not for your team. No,
3: <laughs> no, he is not. <laughs>
1: no, but here's what here's what occurs to me. I mean, the word idiomatic springs to mind, right? When we talk about a phrase or a, or a word or or an expression being idiomatic, we mean everybody in the particular area in the in the place that we're defining that we're living in in that particular moment gets it. Everybody gets it right? All English speakers know what this particular phrase means. Right. And I think the work of John Green is idiomatic in a way that might not be a compliment. <laughs> and the work of Gary Schmidt is not idiomatic right. in a way that might be a compliment. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that's maybe that's something to take up. On the one hand, we can come at this question from the perspective of, does it have weighty thematic material? Okay, both these guys do. Level number two is is it so much a creature of its own time that it is idiomatic instead of non-idiomatic and maybe not idiomatic is actually what a work should strive
0: for. That's kind of what mom was saying. I think a minute ago about, um, it takes time to discover which one of those things is true of a particular book. Some, and you don't, you can't predict, like you just said, maybe John Green 200 years from now will have survived the passage of his idiom. It's possible we can't see the future. So for that reason, we have to wait to declare it a classic. It rose above its idiom and still speaks to people who really have a hard time understanding what those characters are saying.
3: And sort of the degree to which it it participates in the larger conversation about the great ideas, right? And the kinds of contributions that the author himself is making regarding that idea are going to determine its longevity.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, I even think that there is kind of uh, an abundance of authors who are trying to, not, I'm thinking poetry right now, poets who are trying to take up weighty questions in the style of, of Southern Gothic um, narrative poetry, but they all sound the same. And so they're all kind of, you miss them because right. you can't tell one from another, even though they are, are dealing with things that are- Uh, universal and important ideas but um sometimes I do think that style is important Mm -hmm. that you stand out and you stand above
1: did you just make a subtle cut at a whole generation of poets I think you did
2: (laughs) some of it is really beautiful but it also but do
1: you think and this is total (laughs) sidebar but do you think that this that, that there's actually an unhealthy obsession with the idea of southern gothic fiction going on in today's young fiction writers
2: um, and young conservative fiction writers, yes. I Boom! Mean- <laughs> you heard it here first,
1: folks. You heard it here I, first.
2: I love Flannery O'Connor.
1: But and- well, why do we all need to try and be her? We should have another podcast about well, this. No, actually,
3: you, I think you're on to something there because this is always what happens. There's a groundbreaker, right? There's somebody who does something new and then everybody kind of lines up in a queue after them and, so to speak, takes their cues from them. Right, and the, nice. You punster. They start. They start a, a movement, and so the Southern Gothic genre was kind of piggybacking on the work of Flannery O'Connor and others that wrote um, along with her, beside her, like Truman Capote's and Cold Blood and Faulkner's work and things like that. Um, I, you know, I see this going on with Wendell Berry in Jaber Crow*. I think he was doing something kind of new and beautiful with. Um, with some of those ideas and participating in a Southern agrarian um, appreciation of the land and living close to it. Um, I think that his Jaber Crow is probably going to stand the test of time because of its its poetic qualities and its contribution to the conversation about pain and suffering and the significance of community, the nature of um, love, real love. Um, as opposed to self-love or selfish love, um, and so full of imagery, um, repeated motifs and symbols that participate in a larger tradition uh, that I think lifts it lifts it out of the particulars associated with its creation and give it continuity in the larger conversation. Mm. I think it, so. You I actually would come
1: out and say of of. Jaber Crow, particularly, but maybe of Wendell Berry, that you do think he will be a classic someday.
3: I, You're willing I, to go ahead and say that? I would not just before you
1: have now, but that he's gonna survive.
3: I I suspect that he will survive. I wouldn't go on record saying he definitely will because we can't know that. But if I were to bet, make a bet, I would certainly bet on him.
0: It's funny. I've heard some. I've heard um, cultural criticism of Wendell Berry um, uh, because he's a little backward-looking and a little. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, darn, I forgot the word. A little intransigently uh, well, backward, I think, is the, is the right word. He was writing in dark tones, like he looked darkly on the whole enterprise of mechanized farming. Kind and the mechanized farming he was talking about is the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so there's this, you know, there's this this undercurrent of, well, Wendell Berry a hidebound um, troglodyte. But that kind of stuff, I think, is the, is the stuff that falls away in time because the cultural slash political slash economic concerns that surround a book's writing and initial reception are just temporary they're simply not they don't last I his always works think of, of
2: art will be more important than his essays exactly I think so too exactly I, I agree
0: yeah because he as oh, an man, essayist that's true. So as an author yeah authors. as an essayist he's definitely more political and economic and more tied to his time and place I think of the um as a historian of American, American history, I always think of the uh, the issue of bimetallism. You guys familiar with bimetallism?
1: <laughs> yes. Never
0: heard of it. Late 19th century political economic debate that was hot as a pistol for some 25 years in the late 19th century. You, The first thing you wanted to know about a guy was, is, was he a gold man or a silver man? That's it. And people don't even know what that is now and it was the it was the the most important issue of the day in everyone's life in 1880 and it's completely gone a lot of political economic issues are like that and when authors produce a work of art that is that comes from a time that has issues going on like that it's again to what missy was saying earlier we have a hard time seeing them clearly and like i think dickens
1: it's and the industrial revolution exactly right that. dickens
0: right. and the industrial revolution absolutely Absolutely. Harper Lee and, you know, mid 20th century race relations. I mean, that that those kinds of things are the trappings that somehow give rise to a work of art, but they're not the work of art itself. That's right. And mm-hmm. I think figuring out what about a work of art is going to transcend those things is a really fun exercise. And I, I would agree with you, Missy. I think Wendell Berry has, has hit on something that's going to survive his day
3: mm-hmm. in,
0: in books like Jaber Crow.
3: And he's noticed, you know, Immediately speaking, like if we're talking about our immediate time and place, he's noticing some real problems in the culture um, that occurred because of industrialization that moved people away from um, the home and Mm -hmm. intimate communities with one another that are interdependent. And, um, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, historically speaking, we've been charting that since the Industrial Revolution, the movement away from an agrarian lifestyle and towards the city this is not a new idea. It, he's kind of continuing the conversation about those things and about what that's done to family and home, to faith and things like that in this book. So he, he looks backward, yes, he looks backward, but for the sake of looking um, and getting a clear picture of what's going on in his own time. And I think the, from my perspective, the kinds of thematic ideas that grow out of his work are very forward-looking not Mm -hmm. backward-looking, and I think that will be the thing that allows authors that come after him to enter into conversation with him about those ideas and, um, you know, agree or disagree and further that conversation that he's having.
0: So we've got Jaber Crow, or maybe Wendell Berry generally, Marilyn Robinson, or maybe the Home Trilogy in particular, and do I hear a vote for John Green and or Gary Schmidt.
1: You hear you hear a vote for Gary Schmidt. Mm-hmm, me too. Um I think I think I vote Gary Schmidt. I'd I would love to vote John Green just because I had such I a good had, time. I mean, just for our listeners. I've said this before, but I haven't had that much fun in a maybe ever. It's so <laughs> fun. go get a John Green book. It doesn't really matter which one, they're all hilarious. Go get one. It's so <laughs>
2: Uh, actually, it does matter. The newest
1: one isn't as funny. I haven't read the newest one yet. Turtles <laughs> all over the place or something like that. <laughs> That's what Calvin <laughs> yeah. calls it. Yeah. It's, tur- it's called Turtles all the way down. And my brother Calvin calls it Turtles all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> if you knew Calvin, it'd be even funnier. Than it all- um, I just but like- no, I, think John- I think John Green is great. And-, and I think he likewise is talking about some really important ideas. But I do wonder if his idiom will survive. That'll be interesting to see.
3: In that same vein, um, I want to put Leaf Inger on the list, his Peace Like a River, mm. but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, the first time I read it, I thought, oh, this is destined to be a classic. The second time I read it, I thought, oh, this is beautiful, but I'm not sure if this is going to survive. I still love it. It's one of my favorite reads, but I, um, I wonder, what do you think?
0: I wonder uh, too. I mm-hmm. love Peace Like a River by Leaf Anger. Um I wonder why you wonder. What it, what's not to love?
3: Um well, beautiful language, stylistically beautiful. Um mm-hmm. it reads like classic literature without being um archaic.
0: It has the feel the guy the it guy does. writes English like a master.
3: Yeah, he really does. His mm-hmm. beautiful use of the language. Um, The story itself is engaging and um, more than Mm -hmm. just a fun read, you know, an adventure read. It's it really is asking some legitimate questions about the nature of reality um, and confronting the the idea of philosophic materialism. Um, without ever naming it so. You know, hes you've got this dad and, and this little family, and one of the sons in the family doesn't like the idea of a world that is not cause and effect oriented in every matter. Um, he wants to be in control. He's really uncomfortable being out of control. And this is sort of the the underlying conflict um, in the story, although it's certainly not the circumstantial conflict. The circumstantial conflict is, is much... Um, much, what's the word? It's much more dramatic, I guess, because he commits a murder in the first pages of the story. Let's, uh, not,
1: narr- let's not narrate the whole book. No, I'm not That's going like to.
3: Something. But he commits a murder in the first page of the story um, in order to protect his younger sister. And then you follow him th- with his family on a, a basically a road chase, right? The police are after him. And he's on the lam. Really fun read. If you haven't read it, go buy it. You won't put it down until you've read the whole thing. <laughs> but... Um, when you go back to it, it's thinner than it was the time before. Ah. And then back to it again and, and maybe a little thinner still, still love what it. What I would
1: say about it. I want to back you up on this. I think it is a little pat, a little on the nose. It's a little on the nose. I think what he does is asks, asks a couple of really, really good questions and then reduces the question just ever so slightly by pre- pre- presenting you with such a firm answer. In narrative. That is. Uh, yep, it is a little bit on the nose. It's a little pat.
3: And I, I even agree with his pat answer. Yeah, I but do Very too. much so. I think, it, I think it's beautifully, it's beautifully expressed. expressed. Yep, I agree. I but agree. it is
1: not, the answer is not as, um. what's the word? Well, you said thin just a, a second ago. I don't think the answer is as thick as the question.
3: Maybe. And here's my mm, question. Interesting. Do we respond that way because of our time and place because we're in the middle of a cultural malaise and we've been affected by it simply because we live within it. I wonder if this book um, will rise above the cultural malaise and exist long after that malaise disappears.
0: Mm, Cause that's kind of the question that we're asking. We, cause, and, and we're, we're underscoring the necessity for a little distance because we can't tell being in the middle of the culture, just like Lee finger is. And in his culture,
3: I mean, who's to say that the cultural malaise that affects us all is the final word on the matter? And if it's not, and I don't think it is, maybe his answer that partakes of so much capital T truth is going to make this work um, resonate with future generations.
1: I think a fun comparison, maybe, between Lee Fanger and Anthony Doerr, Oh. All the light we cannot see.
3: Yeah, that's interesting.
1: Similar in one sense, they both write like absolute masters. painters. Yeah, like painters, exactly. They write like painters. They write like Michelangelo. Um, But Doerr doesn't
3: have as much to say.
1: Well, sure. um, Or maybe we don't agree as thoroughly with what he does have to say. But I guess I wonder if... Dora's going to have any better luck than anger rising above the circumstances of his era because so many of the questions he is asking are super duper duper germane to our own world presently.
2: In, in particular about technology?
1: Yeah. Mm. Hmm.
2: Well, I thought that he, I don't know, the problem, we can assume that technology is now going to be around for a while. So, And that wasn't all that he was asking. I think that he is at least doing as good of a job as Lee did with the images that he paints and yeah I don't know I don't see him
3: engaging with um, transcendent ideas to the extent that Inger
2: was am I wrong well but I think that what it is is that he doesn't have the same perspective that you do and Lee does well, and a and lot that he of the great authors. doesn't have as much to draw on so that he becomes something like a David Foster Wallace who's asking really deep searching questions but doesn't have answers to give. Or yeah, he it, thinks that he does, but they're not as, as uh, satisfactory to you. Hmm. As, I don't think I agree about
3: that because I don't agree with Hemingway in the answers that he provided, but I would include him on a list of the greatest classics of all time. Same thing with Fitzgerald.
2: Neither one of those guys share my worldview. But no that's not, see that's not the quite the same thing that I'm saying though what do you mean We're
1: talking about two we're talking about two authors in the same context both as stylistic masters who deserve inclusion on any conversation like this because of how great they are at writing.
0: Pro stylists
1: mm-hmm. yeah pro stylists and then we're taking up the issue of the questions they're asking and the answers they're delivering and talking about the relative thicknesses and uh, I guess what? I was suggesting is that Dora is like anger, maybe presenting us with thicker questions than he is answers.
3: And anger is uh, presenting thick questions with thick answers. And so that reads thin because he answers his own questions. Is it, are we, are we maybe discounting him because he's like a a comedian who laughs at his own jokes? Do we have a distaste for that?
1: Mm, Interesting.
3: I don't know. I mean, because it seems like when you hit the 20th century, these um, questions without answers, um, the problem of pain and suffering being acknowledged and explored, but no pad answers, um, that really comes to the forefront. And it, it kind of characterizes an entire generation of fiction. And certainly that continues among postmodern authors. I guess what I'm wondering is that if that's going to continue, what comes after postmodern? We don't know yet because we aren't there yet. And that is gonna determine whether or not the things that these authors were talking about produced
2: survives.
0: That's why, I don't w- think oh, go ahead entirely,
2: Emily. I'm sorry, I just, I don't think it's entirely true that it's only a 20th century thing to, because Ian isn't saying that it's wrong to answer your question. He's saying that the answer is thin in a way that the question was thick.
0: Actually, you're the one that said that first, Missy.
2: That's true. I said that I thought that his, um, that the
3: novel ended up being thin, the second and third read. It wasn't as profound as it could have been. And that may be because he was too tidy.
2: Too tidy Yeah, I, well, his... I, think, yeah I think that's what we're trying to say, too. Um, and Doors isn't the same in that it's tidy. It's a little more vague, and that's its problem. But... Older works, even uh, even 19th century novels, are giving us answers, if they stuck around, that have some depth and, and complexity to them in a way that maybe these two novels don't.
0: Remember that that treatment of Virgil's Aeneid that we read together a couple weeks ago, Missy? Yeah,
2: that was beautiful.
0: And it just pointed up so powerfully the ambiguities inherent in Virgil's treatment of his subject, which is... As um, you know, as culturally determined and as religious and moralistic and pat as can possibly be, let's tell the story of the founding of Rome, this founding of this great race that's going to go on to do great things. Let's glorify the legendary founder. And yet, it's as ambiguous as can possibly be, right down to the final scene where Aeneas, supposedly the embodiment of the Roman code of being kind to the de- to the defeated, drives a spear through Turnus's heart for no reason in a fit of immoderate rage. And the last line we get is Virgil canceling out his whole pat answer. I mean, so yeah, I think the 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 complexity of a of an enduring classic is one of the things we often look back on and it goes back all the way to the beginning of Western literature. And so maybe what you guys are saying is that these last two that we're talking about are maybe a little more pat than that, a little thinner on that yeah, score.
3: I don't, I don't know, maybe I still is, it still makes one of my uh, well, greatest ever reads book list. I would agree with that. Yeah.
2: You know what I think one of the problems is is, I mean, I haven't read a ton of recent literature and I'm trying to get better at that. But two, I think a lot of our great storytellers are being siphoned off into the screen. They're
1: writing movies. Um, and Oh, they're writing TV shows.
2: Yeah, I think that's yeah. true. So I think I like wonder if when changing. we look back that that won't be a major part of the conversation. Some of the great stories, if, if if a great book is not just the printed page, but if it's allowed to be the great stories, if some of them won't be movies and TV shows.
3: Or at least um, that genre, the genre of film is developing a pace and becoming its own medium mm-hmm. of conversation. Mm-hmm. That's at least true.
0: Okay, one last author to consider because I haven't made a contribution yet, and then we can bring this um, scintillating episode of Bibliophiles to a close. And that is Cormac McCarthy and mm-hmm. Blood Meridian and the Road.
2: I can't believe it. I didn't even think of what
0: that. What <laughs> say you to the idea that I will propose now that 200 years down the road, people will still be picking up and cringing their way through Blood Meridian? What, oh man!
2: Everyone and, puts down the road because it made Oprah's book club list, but I think that it—I think it's still my favorite of his.
1: What I think More is that Blood What I think is that I had already so thoroughly assumed that that he didn't even come up in my mind when we asked the question.
0: Here's the thing about McCarthy and the, the a couple of things that we've talked about with respect to these other authors, his use, his intentional use of the language in a poetic, epic, classical way is overwhelming. And it's it's not tied to its time and place because he makes it sound like he's speaking the Old Testament. So it's intentionally timeless and effectively timeless. It doesn't sound... It's odd that you can say this about language that is so dramatic and so epic in scope, but it doesn't sound forced or, or mm-hmm. insincere. And... Then a second thing I will say about it is that it takes into account an entire historical, cultural period and tradition as its backdrop. So it is a mm-hmm. it's a portrait of the American West, which in every in all the same ways that the Aeneid is a portrait of ancient Rome. I mean, it mm-hmm. it takes a it takes a huge significant culture or cultural moment and puts it in literature. And then thirdly. It is, I think, a profound plumbing of the depths of human nature and human depravity, which gives it the status of a conversation about universal ideas that is, for all of that, impossible to forget once you've gone down the road.
2: So what I want to know... I just found a quote from it, this father speaking. He says, he knew only that the child was his warrant. He said, if he is not the word of God, God never spoke. Well, so
0: good. That is
3: beautiful. I have to ask: given what you've just said, um, your eloquent defense of Cormac McCarthy, why have you told me that you don't think I should read it?
0: Well, because (laughs) you don't like the sight of blood. That's why. (laughs) It is by a long shot the bloodiest thing I ever read. Road
2: isn't quite as bad, but it does maybe have. His one most violent image. (laughs)
0: Mm. Mm. It does. It is extremely violent. And so I I think I warned you against it in my role as loving, protective husband more than in my role as literary guide.
3: (laughs) Well, you may have lost today because I may read it. (laughs) At this point, I may say, I'm reading that. Let me just
0: toss my vote in the ring. If you read it, you will be reading a book by a living author that will someday be a classic.
3: All right. That's a pretty good argument for it. That might (laughs) trump my distaste for blood.
0: And I will um, hold your hand all night and rub your back while you have nightmares.
3: (laughs) Really? Is it that? Oh, wow. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. All right. Thanks for the warning.
1: You
0: betcha. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Any other thoughts about this wonderful question which has easily supported an entire episode of Bibliophiles? Thank you so much to the faithful Bibliophiles listener who sent it in. Have we um have we spent our energies on this question? Anything else to say you guys?
2: I just want people to oh, recommend yeah. books to us because I feel like I haven't read them, mm. you know. I feel like they're it's very possible that there are those out there that I just haven't read yet.
0: It would be great to see in the comments below this episode, suggestions from our listeners of books that meet this criterion books by living authors that you think will someday be classics and maybe give us a reason why that'd be really fun to talk about in future episodes.
2: Mm-hmm. Or I even if would. they're not the great books, like the good books. You know? Yeah.
0: Comic books. <laughs> We're going to whatever. Recommendations. <laughs> they're going to be, it. they're going to be reading peanuts in 200 years.
3: You bet they are. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you for your attention, everyone. Thank you, Center for Lit crew, for being with me once again. We're going to go ahead and put this up on the web. If you're interested in the other things that Center for Lit is doing, we encourage you, as always, to go by the website, centerforlit.com, or check out the Pelican Society, our membership club for people interested in all things literary. That's on the web at pelicansociety.com. You can get the podcast anywhere you get your podcast, and please give it a rate if you think about it. We'd love to hear what you think. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy
3: reading. Happy
0: reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit podcast network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.